invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, uh, beginning at verse 19. It was just read for us as our sermon text for this morning. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, it's becoming clearer and clearer that mercy is central for life in God's kingdom. The prayer of salvation most on the lips of those in Luke's Gospel is this simple prayer, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Those shown mercy, they will show mercy in return. Those who lack mercy toward others reveal a famine of mercy received on their own part. Whatever we make of the parable before us this morning with the rich man and Lazarus, I think it's clear to see that mercy is the main thrust, the receiving of mercy and the showing of mercy. We have one who is a character that sees no need for mercy and another who is wholly dependent on mercy. As Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. To those who receive mercy, mercy must be shown. And it all begins with the simple prayer, Lord, have mercy. Will you join me in prayer at this time? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your mercy. You are the Father of all mercies, and as we come to you as your children in great need. Bend low to speak to us now through your word that our ears might hear, our hearts might receive that which you have for us in your beloved Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Conform us into his image from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Jesus teaches in his sermon on the mount, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's what kingdom life looks like. And so we pray, Lord, have mercy. A couple of parables are told in chapter 16, and they're closely tied with chapter 15. So just by way of setting the scene for us here, uh, what we have is Jesus is sitting at table, and he's feasting with tax collectors, sinners, and there's religious leaders in their presence as well. So there's a grumbling, a rumbling of upset religious leaders as an undertone of the atmosphere in that table, at that table. They're angry that this rabbi, Jesus, would be leading people astray, according to their thoughts. That this rabbi, Jesus, would show sympathy to filthy outcasts. And that he would have the nerve to condemn Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. There's a contrast between these religious leaders and sinners and outcasts throughout much of Luke. Those who are lost with those who are found. The lost are those who are maimed or sinners who are outcasts. It's a central theme that Luke uses time and again in looking at Jesus' teaching and his parables. If we remember from last week in chapter 15, there's three parables that were shared at this very table. A lost a sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Throughout those three parables, it was the same refrain that the religious leaders are called to a life of repentance and faith in Jesus as well as they're called to extend mercy to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the outcast. The prodigal son has a, the, young son who was, the younger son who was found, right, after being lost, who was raised after being dead. And how does the older brother respond when, when this raised one comes and the father rejoices? How does the older brother respond to this raised man? He remains outside the feast, refusing 
to go in. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly what you're doing, religious leaders. You're remaining outside the feast, but what I'm inviting you into is a feast of mercy, of grace, of love, of joy, of peace, of rest. And 16, chapter 16, continues with this theme. And each of Jesus' parables here is really interesting because it's, it, they're open-ended as far as leaving room for response. In light of the prodigal son in that story, how will you respond? In light of the rich man and Lazarus, how will you respond? Why do you think it's so hard for us to admit need or weakness or lack? It's difficult for us, I think, isn't it? Especially as Nebraskans, right? We're people that pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And as followers of Jesus, we fall into that thought that maybe life should be all buttoned up. We have things together. We ought to be joyful at all times, right? Well, reasons abound, but, but, I, but know that, that Luke in chapters 15 and 16 here has Jesus talking to us as, as people in need here. We are in the role of those who are in need of God's mercy, though we find it difficult to see our need at times and difficult to ask for it. We have religious leaders grumbling because they've been working really hard to follow God's way, and yet Jesus has them outside of God's kingdom. Why? Why does Jesus have the sinners and the, the tax collectors inside the kingdom and the religious leaders outside of the kingdom? Well, they're the religious leaders. They're the, the healthy, in no need of a physician, and Jesus comes as a physician. They're the ones who are found in no need of a shepherd to seek them or to find them. They're the son that's always done what's being told of them, although this son refuses to enter the feast that Jesus offers. As has been written, the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. And so the religious leaders are saying, hey, we don't need Jesus to enter the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you need Jesus to enter the kingdom. And what is the metric? What is the, the heart temperature of one who is to enter the kingdom? Well, here, at least in part, have they received mercy? And are they extending that same mercy to others? Chapter 16 picks up right where chapter 15 ended, and Jesus still is confronting religious leaders in their failure to extend mercy. If we were to read through chapter 16, starting at verse 1, there's a, a parable that Jesus tells there, some confusing details. But in short, Jesus is again critiquing religious leaders because their failure to steward the gifts God gives. Most directly, God has shown them mercy, and they refuse to extend mercy to those most in need. Jesus teaches in chapter 16 that the law is good and guides still today, but since the time of John the Baptist and now Jesus, the law is fulfilled, and the way to enter the kingdom is through Jesus. And in that means we must receive mercy, and we must show mercy, extending mercy others. And so that's when this parable of the rich man and Lazarus comes to the forefront. So follow along with me in verse 19 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a poor, uh, laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Now this is not the same Lazarus that was raised from the dead by Jesus. This is a story that Jesus tells. It's a story about mercy being with Held. There's contrast being set up, as is often the case in his parables. The first man that we meet is a rich man. He's wealthy, and he loves to feast. 
but our ears might miss a few details as we look at who this rich man is. First of all, how is he dressed? But he's dressed in, in purple and fine linen. There are people throughout the Old Testament described as dressed in purple and fine linen. They are the priests. So the hearer who is familiar with the Old Testament would begin to hear, oh, this rich man is no mere rich man. He is a, a priestly servant in the house of God. Second detail is that he feasted sumptuously. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Feasted sumptuously. That term for feasted is the same word that is used of the sacrificial system when they would feast, like a Passover feast. Hence, the priest again is now feasting. He's officiating religious services. This is no ordinary amount of wealth. He's dressed and he's acting like a priest. Therefore, the religious leaders would see him as the hero. And Jesus clearly marks this rich man out as one who would be a religious leader who serves God, exceeding the demands of the law. This priest would be a walking tabernacle, a hero to the Pharisees and the scribes. And look at his life. I mean, surely this is a blessed man, isn't it? And yet this one who has received so much, he withholds mercy. The end of verse 20 and on. It was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. This Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. It's a story of mercy withheld, even though mercy is needed here. It's a story of our need for mercy. Could the contrast be more stark? You've got a rich man feasting sumptuously every day, and you've got a, a poor man laid at the gate of that rich man. This poor man, Lazarus, he's aching for just crumbs to fall from the table of this man. So weak that he is laid at the gate. Dogs are tending to his wounds, not the priest's. His wounds would have made him unclean, unfit for corporate life, for life of worship. And surely, if either of these is a cursed one, this would be the cursed man, right? Surely God is angry at him for something. He's an outcast, a sinner judged by God. He is reduced to being a beggar, a beggar for mercy. And yet the one who could give what he needs withholds mercy. The one who had received richly of God's bounty now withholds from the one who needs mercy the most. A lost soul in need of mercy is ignored or shunned by the righteous. And then Jesus comes to this startling conclusion, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. See, mercy was received ungratefully, and mercy was withheld. But now we see that mercy is given to the one who lacked it, while mercy is withheld from the one who had received. Mercy received is then given. Mercy given will then be received. Now, this parable is not illustrating what life after death is like. We can get lost in the weeds of the details here, picturing some kind of post-death existence here. That's not the point of this. This isn't a textbook in order to dive into that mystery. 
The imagery here has an exalted rich man descending to Hades. The humble poor man ascends to an eternal feast at Abraham's right hand. In Abraham's presence. It's, a, it's an example of what Jesus says. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, pride, arrogance, it's not only divisive within this life, but it makes one unjust. It blinds us to the needs of others. We lack mercy. So mercy withheld is a symptom of heart disease. There's a void of love for neighbor. The kingdom characteristic of mercy, of love, is lacking. And Jesus in this parable has a firm warning for those who would be identified as these, this rich man here. Now, when I was teaching in Sunday school, I offered $100 for who could tell us what the meaning of the name Lazarus is. And so they looked up through Siri, and they found out. But that was, that was cheating. What does Lazarus mean? God is my helper. God helps. Can you imagine walking through life or not walking through life here, but being laid at the gate? And every time you hear your name being called with the sores on you, you're aching, you're lacking, you're hungry. God helps. God helps. And that's what everybody's seeing. Lazarus naming God's God helps. Rather ironic from the first few verses here, but it's fitting after he dies in some ways, isn't it? As some carried him to the gates in his life, then now others will carry him to Abraham's side. Does it remind you of another man who was cursed in the Old Testament with sores on his body? Isn't this another type of Job who seemed to receive no mercy in this life but received it after here? Here the rich man showed no mercy, and no mercy is shown to him. Hades swallows up the dead where our nameless rich man is in torment, and he cries out. What's he cry out? Do you see that? What's he cry out? Lord, have mercy. Now he's getting it. Lord, have mercy. He sees, he feels his need. Lord, have mercy is his cry. But see, the world in which he inhabited during his lifetime is now extending into his life following death in this story. Having kept his wealth and his goods to feast and fatten himself, he withheld life-giving mercy to those in need. His world was one in which he consumed but would not give. And now his life is one again where he is now being consumed and no help is given. The world he inhabited in this life is extended into the next. To whom much is given, much is required. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If you want a world where mercy is withheld, then in the next life you shall inhabit such a world. Now we can't miss this. Jesus' story brings about an urgency here, isn't it? That's the point for the Pharisees and the scribes who grumble at the table. There's a matter of urgency. The door is open for you to enter God's kingdom through Christ and his way, but know that the door will soon be shut, verse 25, or verse 24, excuse me. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now is comforted here and you are in anguish. Does this sound familiar to you? As far as, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'll start eating better and exercising better soon, right? I'll have that hard conversation later. That paper's not due for another week. 
Uh, my friend used to say, procrastination is the key to a happy now. Huh? <laughs> he didn't do too well in school for some reason. <laughs> Response to the kingdom of Jesus, to Jesus' coming is swift. As the plagues came swiftly, the Jericho walls tumbled, the tabernacle was taken from their midst, the, the temple was destroyed, the Israelites were exiled. God's wrath is sure. God's wrath is swift. The point of this parable is not for the religious leaders to critique the story of the afterlife. The point of the parable is that they would begin to examine their own waning hope for entrance into God's kingdom. It's too late for the rich man, but perhaps others can be warned. It's too late. The door has closed for the rich man, but perhaps others can be warned in time. Verse 26, he says, besides this, there's a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none shall cross from there to us. Verse 27, the rich man said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Have mercy on my family, on my friends, is now the cry of this man who withheld mercy his lifetime. Have mercy on my family and friends, but this request is declined, as well as the request for his tongue to be cooled. Surely the concern for his family is a sign of health. If we look at the religious leaders who are grumbling, we can see that they do desire their family, their friends, to follow the way that God has ordained us to live and to walk. Both the rich man and the priests of our parable, the Pharisees and the scribes, they want their families to be safe, to know life. Jesus and Father Abraham here, however, warn that their way of Obedience to the law, but yet lacking mercy, that way is the way that leads to death. As Jesus says elsewhere, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's what Jesus is criticizing them of here in this parable. He would go on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes your proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. That is our parable in a nutshell. The way of the religious leaders leads, has led to death, as the rich man's way has led to Hades. But why would this Abraham, why would God refuse to send help like Lazarus? Wouldn't that be convincing? Why not offer every possible way of having others here? And Abraham's first answer is, look, they've got all of Moses' writings. They've got all of the prophets. Same things that you had, same things that you neglected. They have enough to hear. But do they have ears to hear? Verse 30 and 31. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from, to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That would be convincing, I think, wouldn't it? To, to have a, a dead man raise up and tell you the way. It seems like that would be pretty convincing. Did that happen in the prodigal son, though? Remember that? How was the younger son described by the father? This, your brother, was dead but is alive again. A dead man was raised, goes to the brother, is delighting in the feast that the father offers. And does this older brother go in to celebrate with this dead man raised to life? 
he refuses to enter in to the kingdom's feast where the raised man dines forever. And isn't this the way of the religious leaders from here on as well? The religious leaders remain outside the feast in that parable, and Jesus has them outside the feast here as well. So Jesus has been inviting religious leaders into his kingdom feast, and yet they refuse. God's been inviting them through the law and through the prophets, through his word, and yet they killed the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. The rich man slash priest would have known God's compassion and God's patience with his people. He would have known the commands to care for the widow, the poor, the orphan, the stranger, the outcast. He would have known that God is rich in mercy. He would have known that God calls his followers to a life of extending mercy to those in need. And yet this rich man continually withheld mercy from Lazarus. If he, if his brothers would not receive God's word and live according to it by faith, then not even a man raised from the dead would, would bring, uh, bringing them a word would convince them. Now, it could be for a season, maybe, in the same way that a heart attack improves our diet exercise for a time. But it's faith alone in Christ alone that saves, not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit. The life of mercy is what the rich man finally cries out for, what he finally feels his need for. Could not show mercy to Lazarus because he himself saw no need for mercy in his life. He had not received God's mercy and had none to give. The life of mercy requires a life of faith. It is out of the posture of humility, out of a posture of need, of weakness, even helplessness, that followers extend mercy then to others. In the same way that we receive mercy from God with open hands of need, so we freely give kindness, goodness, justice, love, joy, peace, mercy to others. I think that's why Jesus tells these parables, were, which, which are actually quite scathing against the religious leaders, condemning the merciless way. He is offering refuge to those who need mercy. And he's saying, come into the kingdom and you will find a feast with the king. He's also offering mercy to those who have not received it, who refuse, who reject the mercy that God is giving through Jesus Christ. But here in these parables, he's very clear. For those who refuse the mercy of Jesus Christ, know that the door will not always remain open for the kingdom. Know that the door is closing soon. Do we see clearly our need for the mercy of God, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is true that we are glorious image bearers of God, our creator. We created for goodness, for beauty, for truth. But our being, our nature, we are tainted by sin. Our hearts are wayward and wandering. See, we need a mercy to recreate us, to remake us, to renew us in the image of Jesus Christ. The thing is that we often don't see that, feel that need. And therefore, we often sit in judgment of others, condemning many who are not like us or seem to offend God by their life and their choices. 
And God doesn't call us to compromise, but he calls us to patience, to, to love, to extend mercy when we are so quick to judge. It's been fascinating reading these chapters and studying them because it seems at the heart of it is just simply that old love your neighbor as yourself. Love God above all else. These chapters, these parables, these stories are all about neighbor love, about extending mercy that we have received from God to our neighbor. That's the Bible's story. And we don't need Lazarus to rise from the dead to tell us this is the way because his word is clear on these things. And besides, we do have one who was raised from the dead, don't we? We do have one, a better Lazarus, a true Lazarus who rose from the dead, who lives now to intercede for us before the Father. This true Lazarus has actually conquered death forever, not just passed through it himself, but has defeated death in his death. And this Jesus, this risen Lazarus, is the word of God who speaks through Moses, through the prophets, who speaks through his word, who speaks through his body, the church. Entrance into the kingdom of God is beginning with the cry, Lord, have mercy. We come humbly to Christ, inviting him to search us, to know our hearts, inviting him to help us to see our need, our lack, and by his spirit to cry out for mercy. And life in him means that we then extend his life to those around us in our lips, in our life. In Christ, we go into the world as vessels of mercy, crying continually to our God, Lord, have mercy. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this, your word, living and active. Come near to us now. And teach us to extend mercy as we receive mercy that you have given to us through your dear Son. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.